This is the last weekend of a seven-week series that we've been calling Identity. In the Gospel of John, Jesus himself makes seven major statements about who he is, his own identity, and each of these seven statements, they start out with the two words, I am, and then they fill in the blank after that. Just one purpose of, the, of John's Gospel is uh, John wants everyone to know that Jesus is God in human form and that Jesus wants a relationship with us more than anything else. So what Jesus does in the midst of his three-year ministry, along with his miracles and his healings, he does a lot of teaching. And part of his teaching is coming up with metaphors and examples that would make sense for those listening with first century years about who exactly Jesus is. And because we know his identity is unchanging out of Hebrews 13.8, we know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It means that his identity still holds true for us in 2016. Reviewing kind of a recap of the series up to this point, in John 6, Jesus says that he is the bread of life. Almost everyone here, you know, we have two to three meals a day to satisfy our hunger. But Jesus comes along and says that there is an even more important food that can satisfy an even more important hunger. Jesus knows that our souls crowd for something significant, something meaningful that uh, even can't be satisfied beyond what earth has to offer. You know, Jesus understands that even when it looks like on paper we have everything that we could possibly want or need, that we can still feel empty inside. So as a remedy, Jesus says to us, whoever comes to me will never be hungry again, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And that's a promise that we can cling to as far as this is part of Jesus' identity. Moving on a couple chapters down the line, he goes on to say, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Now, the world that we live in, it's a lot of things, and we could probably all agree that the world is dark. You know, not only the world, but even in our own country, we can have this same sentiment, this same feeling. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I'm a, I'm a Netflix guy, so I came across uh, the documentary that CNN put out a few years ago just on the 60s. It's now streaming on Netflix. And it's this 10-part series just on all the people, the mindsets, the culture, the music, everything that has to do with the 1960s. And there was one episode that was strictly focused on the year 1968. And just from watching that, uh, it seemed that 1968 was a year where nothing good happened at all. You had Martin Luther King assassinated. Then a couple months after that, the second Kennedy brother was assassinated. Rioting going on in major U.S. cities. And the Vietnam War was at its height of despair. And they, were, they brought this archive of this uh, interview with a woman that they did there in 1968. And she was just lamenting that... She doesn't know what the world is coming to. She, this isn't the country that she feels she grew up with. She feels like it's falling apart. Just feels hopeless altogether. Now, that was almost 50 years ago, and if you turn on the TV now, turn on the radio, read whatever article you like, you're going to hear the same sentiment. Nothing's changed. Darkness is not anything new. It's been around since the very beginning. Jesus knows that, so that's why he says he's the light. If we follow him, then we do not need to walk in the darkness that so much of the world continues to walk in. He goes on. John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. You know, we don't have a distant, unconcerning God who has no interest in our daily lives. He didn't create the earth and then turn his back on us. No, he's interested in us. He's after us. He's in love with us. He cares about us. In Luke, it says that God knows the exact number of hairs on our head. Or if you don't have a lot of hair, then he knows the number of hairs that you used to have on your head. I'm paraphrasing. It's probably in there. But he knows us, knows every single detail about us. 
Jesus says that we can that his followers can know him and we get to know him in return. And one job of a shepherd was to protect his sheep. And one way we can take advantage of that security, that protection, is that uh, we get to listen to that voice. We can uh, avoid maybe unnecessary damage or dysfunction or drama or just mistakes just in knowing what voice to listen to. I tend to uh, listen to people who listen to Jesus, and I encourage people to do the same. Sheep knows their shepherd's voice and trusts it and can rely on that trust. Then these last two weeks, we've looked at two major earth-shattering statements. One, I am the resurrection and the life out of John 11. And then last week out of John 14, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, it said that none of us are getting out of this world alive. And Jesus makes some very bold statements about himself regarding all of us when it comes to are we spending eternity with Jesus or are we spending eternity without Jesus? That's kind of been the direction of the last two weeks. And this morning we come to the last statement, the seventh I am statement, and that is out of uh, John 15 when he says, I am the vine, I'm the true vine, or I'm the true grapevine. Now before we dive in, we want to put some context around here before we get into the content. Context is important. When Jesus speaks these words that he's the true vine or the true grapevine, he is in his last 24 hours, almost his last 12 hours. He's in the upper room and Judas has already left to go betray him to the Pharisees at the temple. And so it's just Jesus remaining with his, uh, with his last 11. It's really down to the wire here. His last words, and uh, what Jesus is pretty much saying is, if you haven't been paying very close attention these last three years, now is the time where you really need to listen up. John 15, verse 1. Here it is. It says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." We don't live in wine country, so we need to briefly walk through this. In any vineyard, there's at least one gardener who makes sure that the grapes are growing and that those grapes are healthy and good. You know, a cluster of grapes, it grows from a branch, and that branch is attached to a vine. God plays the part of the gardener, and because God knows us, cares about us, he's not that distant God that some people believe he is, because he knows and cares for us, he takes a very close look at our lives. God is always looking for fruit, evidence of us being a disciple. And sometimes that fruit comes very easily, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we need to go through some maybe difficult times. Sometimes God needs to do some pruning, to use this John 15 language. Maybe just reflect on your own life. Have you ever been through a time where you felt like your faith was being tested? You know, a tragedy occurs, a friendship is on the rocks, maybe a disease is diagnosed. Or maybe you just feel like God is asking you to do something so huge and intimidating that you really just don't want to. Maybe you've been through a circumstance like that or many uh, situations like that, and you've gone through it, you've been obedient, you've tried to be faithful, and you come out on the other side. Now, when you came out on the other side of obedience, did you find yourself closer to Jesus? Did you find that your faith was stronger or that your faith walk was more inspiring to other people? Maybe some solid ministry or greater life change happened because of it. 
if you've come through a circumstance like that and come out closer to Jesus on the other side, because of that difficulty, it just means that you were being pruned. Pruning is often painful. You see, new fruit can only grow on new branches, so every year what the gardener has to do in any vineyard is take out his pruning shears and just cut back on those worthless branches so some new fruit can grow. The vine needs to spend its energy, what energy it has, on making new branches so those branches can make new fruit. So for those of us who choose to remain, to abide, to rest in, to keep connected to Jesus, the promise is we are going to produce fruit. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It may not be immediate, but it is absolutely inevitable if we remain in Jesus. Uh, we're, we're in these first four verses. We're kind of skipping verses 5 through 11. Uh, we're going to pick up in uh, verse 12 here in a moment. But if you were to sit down after this and read the first 11 verses, you'll know that one word keeps popping up over and over again. And it's this word remain in some versions. Some versions say abide, but uh, we're using the, we're using the uh, word remain. It appears 10 different times in just 11 verses. And a good tip for Bible study is whenever you see a word repeated often or you find just a lot of it's being used in a short span of time, it's, uh, it means just to pay attention. This is kind of the key word to grapple around. So if we're making this simple, and I like to make things simple, it seems like Jesus is saying that the best relationship with him is going to come from remaining in him. You know, it doesn't come from going to Jesus only when we've had a bad day, and it doesn't come uh, from going to Jesus when uh, we feel like we need something. It is the day in, day out, staying connected, remaining in Jesus. He is what we're connected to, and we're connected to nothing else. You know, I grew up uh, in Indianapolis, and I grew up just a few miles from an apple orchard. And if you've been to the orchard, and you're walking these rows, and there are two kinds of apples, two kinds of fruit. There's the apple that's hanging from the tree, and that's what you go, you pluck it off, you put it in the bag, you get a bunch of these apples, you go home, and you have the best apple time you can stand, and they're great memories. But then there's the other apple, and those are the apples that have fallen on the ground, and if you've been to these orchards, then you know that they're nasty, they are rotten, they are infested with uh, just insects, flies are buzzing around, and they're not even good for kicking. They're absolutely worth it because they have become disconnected from the one thing that they were made to be connected to. They're no longer connected to the branch. We like the fruit that remains connected, attached. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he tells us that he is what's worth remaining attached to and connected to. And if we're attached to anything else, then no good fruit is going to come from it. So that leaves the question, how do I remain in Jesus? It's a very practical day here at Southwest, so how do we remain in Jesus? If you're someone who likes to write things down, here's, uh, here's probably the first thing that might be helpful. Uh, just three things right at the gate. That is read, pray, obey. And we'll get into each of these and kind of uh, attach something practical to do with each of these things. Uh, kind of going to maybe do some glossing over the reading and the praying. Most of our time is going to be focused on the obeying at the end. But starting off with reading and praying. Reading and praying, those are the two major ways that God has given us to cultivate a relationship with him. And many of us find reading the Bible uh, difficult, or we're just confused, and it's just, uh, it just seems to be a headache whenever we try and pick it up. You know, we don't always know uh, how to make, what to make sense of what we read, and uh, maybe, have you done, have, how many of us in this room, they've done that thing, we pick up a Bible, and we just kind of close our eyes, flip it open, and just wherever our finger lands, that is what God wants us to read for that day. Yeah, I've done that. 
Many of us do that. Just here's a tip. Don't stop doing that. That's not how it works. <laughs> here's something you can do. Super practical. This Wednesday, we are starting a six-week class, Getting to Know Your Bible. It's going to be, uh, you know, every Wednesday for the next six weeks at 7 p.m. here at the building. And we are taking a very simple introductory look at what the Bible is, what the Bible isn't, and how we can best use and understand it. The first week, we're going to take a 35,000-foot view, just as what, you know, the 66 books in this Bible, you know, about 40 different authors, all written over the course of about 15, maybe 1,500 years. Yeah, that sounds right. So, and they're all pointing toward, the, all these books pointing toward the same message. So what does this mean for us? Why does this matter? The following week, we're diving right into just the, all those different laws and the stories from the Old Testament. You know, there are 613 do's and do nots in the pages of the Old Testament. So that brings up a question, what do we do with all these? Do we need to follow every single 613 because some have to do with sacrificing animal and boiling goats and milk and does that still make sense for us? What do we do with it? We're going to cover that. Also, what do all those narratives, those stories from the Old Testament, what does that have to do with our walk today? The following week, we're just getting into poetry. That's mainly the book of Psalms. So what does poetry, how does that help my walk with Jesus in 2016? Well, we're going to cover it. There's going to be another week where we're just looking at mainly the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels. We have four different books that tell the same story of Jesus' life and ministry. Why do we need four? Can it all be whittled down to just one? Well, no, these four different Gospels have very, four very different uh, purposes. So we'll talk about it. We'll, make, we'll break it down. So I'll say this. If you can't make week one, come to week two. If you can't come to week one or two, then come to week three. We're trying to take away that excuse that we don't know how to best understand our Bible. So we're offering a chance, hey, this is how you understand it. Again, Wednesday, 7 p.m., the next six weeks. We'd like for you to sign up. You don't have to. Cindy might kill me for saying that, but there are sign-ups on the sheet at the counter out here. You are invited. Invest in your walk with Jesus in this way. Plus, there's going to be ice cream. Out of reading, praying, and uh, obeying, I feel like uh, I'm less disciplined on the praying end. You might feel like that is your strong suit. Uh, I always consider it maybe probably the weakest for me of the three. But there's this promise Jesus makes when he says that as the true vine, if I remain in him, then he is going to remain in me. It is a promise. And I don't not only want to be connected with Jesus, but I also want to be fruitful as his follower, as his disciple. Maybe you've had these conversations, these faith-centered conversations that, you know, just come at the right time and they kind of reinvigorate you, you know, gives you some new spiritual energy or just stir something up in you. I had, a, I had one of these with a close friend a couple weeks ago. We got a late-night dinner at Waffle House, and yes, good and holy things can happen at a Waffle House. Write that down. But we got to talking about the Holy Spirit and how I just hadn't felt his presence in a long time. You know, the, the world is divided up into thinkers and feelers, and I almost live solely in the world of thinkers. I've never been accused of being emotional, but... <clears throat> I feel like, you know, the Holy Spirit is something that I just, is someone I haven't felt in a long time. Not to say he wasn't present, because I think he is, but just I hadn't felt that. And it was just one of those long, good conversations. So following that, almost every morning since then, I started praying a prayer. Just praying for the Holy Spirit to uh, be very evident, be very obvious, and just invade my day. That was the language I used for the Holy Spirit to invade my day. 
and nothing really happened for about a week and a half. And that's not to say God doesn't answer prayers. It's just I think, you know, my theology of prayer is that uh, God likes us to be persistent. It kind of creates a desire for us. So I think God was developing that persistence in me. Do you really want this? So nothing happens for about a week and a half until this last Thursday morning it happened. Holy Spirit invades my day. I was uh, getting coffee with a student at the Starbucks in Centerville, the one on 48. And uh, I was with this student, you know, for a couple hours, but there was this, there was this uh, guy on the opposite side of the room that I just kind of kept finding myself looking at. <clears throat> you know, he was, you know, sitting in a chair, you know, he was reading, he was studying, he had a Bible open, so that piques my interest. And then uh, a guy comes in to have coffee with him, and I know this guy, you know, from a few years ago, and uh, it's like, okay, that raised some more interest. And then he leaves, and then another acquaintance of mine seems to know this guy. They do some interaction. So more and more, I'm just like, I, I feel like I need to introduce myself to this guy, and if you know me, you know that I don't go introduce myself to strangers. So what happened was I kept talking myself up. The, the uh, 16-year-old spurred me on, spurred some courage in me. He talked me up, and then he left, and then I was like, all right, I'm going out. I'm going to talk to this guy. So I introduce myself to this man. His name is Arthur, and he immediately invites me to sit down. And uh, he's a Jesus follower. And uh, whatever, he's one of these guys, whatever came out of his mouth was just straight wisdom or just scripture that he had memorized. So he's like dropping Bible verses all over the place, you know, some from Psalms and some from Corinthians and some from the book of John. And uh, we even read a chunk out of the, out of the book of Job together. We were together for about a half hour. He did most of the talking. I did most of the listening. And it was one of these things where I just left the conversation energized, stirred up after this appointment that the Holy Spirit unmistakably made for the two of us. But it was even more encouraging to get such a direct answer to an obvious prayer that I've been having and to have this with, with someone who so obviously understands and gets this remaining, abiding in Jesus thing, being connected to the vine. You know, I'm still trying to process this even three days later. There are a lot of things said in this conversation where, you know, just a lot of coincidences popping up and just things I really needed to hear and uh, just a lot of things that just wouldn't make sense to share from the stage, at least not this weekend. But it was just uh, staggering just how obvious it was. And one thing it reminded me of is a prayer that I came across a few years ago that I want to share with you guys. It's a prayer that not only, if, you know, if we pray it daily, it not only will you know, keep us connected to the vine, but also allows us to uh, bear some fruit. I didn't come up with this. I stole it. So I'm going to share it with you, and you can steal it and give it to somebody else. But here it is. If you're writing things down, part one of this prayer is just this. Uh, God, let me be your servant today. And there's really nothing about this three-part prayer that's going to be earth-shattering, but it's just a matter of if we pray this, we take the chance to pray this, some really awesome things can happen out of this. So first is, God, just let me be your servant today. You know, we are kingdom believers. You know, we're on this earth. You know, we start following Jesus. We want to be his servant and make disciples and just bless people in our day. So just taking on the role of servant more than anything else, even above father, mother, brother, uh, employee, just taking on the role of servant even above everything else. God, let me be your servant today. Follow that up with bring that person you want me to serve to my awareness. As I'm going about my day, just make it painfully obvious that I need to interact with this person, encourage this person, listen to this person. Just make it super obvious. And to be even more helpful, bring it into the, three part, the third part, being send the Holy Spirit to that person and make them aware that I'll serve them. 
I kind of felt like that happened with me on Thursday. I like calling them divine appointments that the Holy Spirit can set up between people. So again, that's, you know, first, God, let me be your servant today, followed up with, bring that person you want me to serve to my awareness, then send the Holy Spirit to that person and make them aware that I will serve them. For the remainder of our time, I want to, uh, you know, get even more practical, if that's possible, just looking at this uh, third part of being able to remain in Jesus, and that is the obeying part. And I want to look at obedience as it pertains to verses 12 through 17 in chapter 15 with this commandment to love each other. So here's what Jesus says, starting verse 12. He says, This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command, love each other. There's that verse in there, verse 13, uh, that says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Jesus said it, so I'm going to agree with it. You know, we like that idea of friendship. Uh, this is, friendship, it's, a, it's sort of a passion topic for me. If I ever get to choose on what to teach or to talk about, often it kind of goes toward friendship. So I, I spend a lot of time thinking on this. You know, we like the idea of friendship that we would be willing to die for our friends or that our friends would be willing to die for us in return. And you can even find this on people's bodies. I know more than one person who has tattooed on themselves the phrase, for those I love, I will sacrifice. It's tattooed on their body somewhere. And at first hearing, we think, oh, that's awesome, right? What a beautiful sentiment, how heroic that sounds. And it is, but get this. I think everyone in the world feels this way, right? Even if you wouldn't tattoo this on your body, you can still say, for those I love, I will sacrifice. Now, I don't go around sucking the meaning out of everyone's tattoos. <clears throat> but this is something that I came across and I wanted to deconstruct when we're laying it toward, like, how do we love the people around us? Even maybe those that we don't feel like loving all the time. Uh, I performed my first funeral a couple of years ago. I didn't know the woman. I worked at a larger church where if the family didn't request a certain pastor, then we were kind of on this rotating basis. So the rotation fell to me. So uh, I am uh, you know, tasked with coming up with a funeral. And just so you know, whenever you decide to leave to buy the farm, to kick the bucket, know that it is the pastor's impossible job to whittle your entire life down to one or two sentences. And it's even more difficult when you don't know the person. So, you know, I speak with this family for, uh, it, was, it couldn't have been more than 15 minutes. They weren't very talkative, and I get that. You know, they were grieving. But I get what I can, and I'm able to come up with this, uh, this message. And uh, I'm preaching this funeral, and this is what I kind of whittled this woman's life down to. I say out loud that, uh, I say, she would have done anything for the people she loved. She would have done anything for the people she loved. And, uh, you know, people, they, they do the head nod thing. This, you know, people do the, mm, yeah, that was her. That was her. And I almost felt guilty because, really, if we get to think about it, this is everyone in the world, no different from anyone else in this room. You know, it could easily be said that all of us feel like we would do anything for people we love. And maybe you said yourself that you would die for your friends. You know, I, I hear it among uh, among some students, and I actually see this pretty regularly on, on Twitter, just the sentiments that, you know, I would die for my friend if I had to. 
And uh, even among like the you know, 20 on down, th- those full of testosterone and not much else, uh, they have this genuine expression conveying love for their buddy that, you know, I would take a bullet for you if I had to. Now, I hear that and I think there are two things. One, what kind of life are you living where bullets are coming at you on a regular basis in Springboro, Ohio? And two, this would never happen. This circumstance is never going to happen for you. You know, there's not a likelihood that you will legitimately be called upon to die for your friend. Maybe there's a military, there's uh, some, there's firefighters, there's police officers, but outside of that, the chance is not going to happen. But yet we rest on that assurance, men and women both. I'm sure women have their own, uh, their own comparative statement. I, don't, I haven't heard any women talk about taking bullets for each other, but I'm sure there's an equivalent out there. But we rest on this assurance, even though it will never, ever be tested. You know, we, we rest on this, you know, this idea that our friends would die for us, but I'm guessing a lot of us can't remember the last time we said, I love you, or when a friend said, I love you, back to us. If I think about it, that doesn't make the most sense to me. So I keep using this word practical for the morning. We are putting hands and feet to our faith. So uh, I think I did, I had you pull out your phones last time I was up here. Uh, So if you're a texting person, now's the time. Bring out the phone you're allowed to. And if you don't have texting capability, then uh, certainly email even just talk to someone's faith. But here's something I want us all to do. Take out a phone and text this phrase to somebody, or even more than one somebody. How can I be a better fill-in-the-blank? Fill that blank with whatever you like. You know, how can I be a better friend, boss, neighbor, brother, sister? Just this week, I think Wednesday, I sent out, how can I be a better friend? And I sent out, how can I be a better pastor to you, to different populations? And I got back really, really awesome and challenging answers. This is the most practical takeaway for us today. So, here's, so I really, really want all of us to do this. And whatever responses you get back, uh, these responses, they're going to give you a very tangible, concrete way to live out this commandment of loving each other. Because that's really what is at the heart of this question that we're sending out, is how can I love you in a better way? And whatever they respond back with, make a commitment to put energy toward meeting that need. Be it a friend, be it a family member, be it someone you work with, a neighbor, make a commitment to put energy toward meeting that need, whatever they respond back with. And I put this challenge out before to students, and some said, oh, I'm not going to do that, that would be weird. And if you're feeling that way, that it would be weird to send this to a friend, then maybe take a hard look at how shallow or deep your friendships are. I think friendships should be taken very seriously, and I think questions like this should be able to happen naturally. And if you don't like this phrasing, then come up with your own phrasing. But the point is, please, please, please do this. You know, it's just a massive question that is rarely asked. And asking a question like this, it requires vulnerability. It requires humility. Love is like that. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing selfish about it or self-centered. My understanding of love is just all about doing what is best for the other person. And the promise is that if you follow with whatever this person asks of you, then you will grow in your attachment to Jesus. You will look more like him. And there's that phrase out there that we are never more like Jesus than when we are serving other people. Twice in John 15, Jesus refers to himself as our friend. And the benefit of a friend is that we get to be a part of their life, and we get to know what they're doing, and we get to know what they're going through. We get to know Jesus. He is not a distant God that has no interest in in our lives. 
we get a relationship based on love with him. Jesus is that friend who did lay down his life for us, and he was right. There is no greater love than that. So we're going to have communion ready to go to kind of uh, remember this moment. They're preparing it now. And as uh, the music starts, you guys have this chance to remember and thank Jesus for showing us the greatest love that he possibly could. Love has no greater example than what Jesus did for us on the cross. And he all did this, all for the reason that we could possibly, if we choose to, have a relationship with him based on this self-sacrificing love. I'm going to pray for us, then communion is going to be passed, so take this time to just thank and remember. Pray with me. Jesus, we uh, often take shallower versions of this idea of friendship, but yet you laid out the ultimate example and that love is self-sacrificing. If not physically, then in our actions and just how we treat each other. So there will come a time to talk, to th- talk and think about just the people in our lives, but in this moment, help us think on and remember and thank just you, you in your example in self-sacrifice, in choosing to die based on nothing else but love. We ask that this be a holy moment for us. So help us with this. We give the time to you. It's in your name. Amen.